Hello, lovelies, and thank you again for tuning in to listen closely. If you haven't already, please like, follow, share, subscribe, all those good things on all my social medias and on the actual podcast. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok are all at HTT, listen closely. And then, you know, if you're listening on Apple, leave five stars, leave a review, let me know how I'm doing. And subscribe if you're on anything else, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, any of those good things. This week we are going to be talking about the Moonlight Murders again. We last week went over all of the actual crimes that occurred. And then this week we're going to be talking about, you know, the actual evidence as well as suspects and the movie that was inspired by these events. So without further ado, let's get into it. So first I just want to do kind of a recap. So we're going to real quickly go through this. This crime spree happened between February 22nd, 1946 until May 3rd of the same year. There were four official crimes, five killed with three wounded. The first incident happened on February 22nd, 1946, and that was with Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry. Both of them survived, although pretty badly wounded. The second attack was actually the first murder, and I was Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore. During this one, they recovered one bullet and two cartridge cases. However, no fingerprints or other evidence was developed due to it raining that night. So therefore, they had no fingerprints, nothing else. It was just one bullet and two cartridge cases that were recovered with this first murder. And then on April 14th, 1946, we had the second murder, third attack, the victims being Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Now, during this attack, they did recover six cartridge cases and four bullets, which had been identified as being fired from the same gun used in the first murder. So in the first murder, which was of Richard and Polly Ann. Also, during this one, they obtained three fingerprints, and they were unidentified, not belonging to any of the victims, as well as one black hat cord. And then we move into May 3rd, 1946, which would be the fourth and final attack. The victims being Mr. Virgil Starks, who unfortunately passed away, and Mrs. Katie Starks, who was injured by but survived her injuries. Now, during this attack, it is believed that the assailant came into the house, but left it without disturbing anything after he did not find Mrs. Starks because she ran off to go find help. Uh, They did recover a two-celled flashlight that was found on the lawn where he was standing by the window, as well as three 22 cartridge cases, one bullet that was removed from Mr. Starks and the other not located. One bullet passed through Mrs. Starks' nose, which was recovered, and then one lodged under her tongue. They did have photographs of fingerprints and footprints that were forwarded to the FBI, as well as, you know, all the cartridge cases and all this information was forwarded to the Bureau. They also had one palm print of value during this attack and All evidence from all of the murders and attacks from the very first to the very last was all forwarded to the FBI for further investigation. Again, this is the 1940s. 
And the FBI was, you know, a little bit more equipped than some of these smaller police stations. Okay, so now that we did a little recap, let's get into some of these suspects. As you know, they had interviewed and eliminated a bunch of suspects. You know, everybody was pointing fingers. So they were saying, you know, I think so-and-so did it. I think, you know, this person did it. And there were reasons to believe that some were more likely than others. However, they eliminated a ton of people. So they had no leads, really. And when they would compare the stories and the fingerprints that they did recover and things like that, just nothing seemed to pan out at all. And there were some people that were saying, hey, it was me. I was the Texarkana phantom killer. But nothing was panning out. So even the ones that were really admitting to it, you know, they either had alibis or their stories just did not corroborate with the evidence. So they had nothing. They were grasping at straws, honestly. And just to give you a better idea of why they really had nothing, let's look back at the attacks. So we had the very first ones, which gave us a description of a man wearing a white hood, almost like a pillowcase, with the eye holes cut out for him to see. However, they could not agree on a race. So like one was saying it was one race. The other person was saying it was a different race of person. So neither Mary nor Jimmy could really give the police a good like description. And that's the only one we have because all the other victims had passed away. Mrs. Starks was the only other survivor and she did not set eyes on the attacker at all. So they had literally nothing that of course is until they got some promising leads a little bit more than you know the ones previously at least so on november 5th 1948 the body of 18 year old henry booker tennyson otherwise known as hb tennyson was found in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He was a freshman at the University of Arkansas and was known more commonly as either HB or Duty. And he had taken his own life and his chosen method was to poison himself with cyanide of mercury. Upon checking his room, police did find a note in which he had claimed he had been responsible for the Texarkana Phantom Moonlight Murders. Uh, looking into this note, uh, he said that he did, in fact, murder Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, as well as Mr. Starks and then injuring Mrs. Starks. So other than this note, why did they believe that it was duty? Well, his cousin, John Tennyson, was a forensic psychiatrist, and he believed that that there was connections to all the victims. Uh, Duty was once an usher at the theater where the victims were last seen, and he was also in the same high school band as Betty Jo. Duty's friend also lived under the same roof as the sister of Katie Starks. So, you know, there were some connections, supposedly, and that's why John Tennyson, his cousin, believed that, yes, Duty could have done this. So, being good policemen, they took his fingerprints and you know they asked around and was like hey where was he on these nights can anybody corroborate that yes he was in Texarkana or you know was he not and it was actually one of his friends that was very adamant that during the Virgil Starks and Mrs. Starks attack he wasn't in Texarkana like he stated he said he was with him the whole night they were there together until midnight and Tennyson never left his sight so his friend was very adamant that no, he was not there. He did not commit that crime. 
And like I said, the fingerprints were taken and they were checked against the Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker crime scene and they were not a match. Ballistics checks on weapons Tennyson had access to also came back negative. He had nothing other than this note stating that he did it that could corroborate, yes, he is in fact the murderer. So they had to rule him out because there was nothing that could really connect him to that other than you know some coincidences and the fact that he himself said it but you know he was no longer with us so they couldn't question him and all the evidence was saying that it was not him so again you know they're questioning people they're bringing people in they're you know doing their due diligence and they're just going nowhere fast with this they cannot figure out who the phantom is until max tackett a police officer gave the investigation some new hope he had realized that before each murder a vehicle had been reported stolen so you know he kind of took that little thing and he ran with it so on june 28th tackett located a vehicle stolen just before the murder of virgil starks in a Texarkana parking lot. He, along with his partner, Tillman Johnson, decided to wait and see who came back to the vehicle. It was, you know, a little bit later that 21-year-old Peggy Sweeney returned to the vehicle from a nearby store and she was arrested. Like, they took her in and, you know, they asked her questions like, why are you going to this stolen car? And that's when Peggy informed the officers that the car actually belonged to her husband, Yule Sweeney, but she was driving it as he was in Atlanta, Texas, when they had obtained her. And get this, so the reason why he was in Atlanta, Texas, was because Yule was trying to sell a stolen car. So when he returned to Texarkana, he was arrested, and of course, he thought he was getting arrested for attempting to sell a stolen car. You see, Sweeney had a history of getting into trouble. His police record included multiple charges for car theft, burglary, assault, and counterfeiting. On searching the hotel room where he and his wife had been staying, a shirt was found, which was of particular interest. Uh, found in the closet, the pocket had the name Stark stenciled on it. In terms of possible evidence, this was nothing compared to the bombshell his wife was about to drop. And when I mean drop, I mean she literally opened up a whole new can of worms. So during questioning, Peggy gave many detailed statements explaining how her husband had actually been the one committing the phantom killer crimes and the bizarre thing is that she even confessed that she had been with him on at least one occasion although she took no part in the actual killings herself or the attacks herself she was just you know there like a third party that was there and witnessed it and didn't do anything and the amount of details she gave to certain things were amazing like she was giving some details that weren't even released to the public yet that only the officers on the case knew about and she was giving those kinds of details that you know it really made her sound like she either was there or she knew the person that was there aka her husband and again her description of her own involvement varied so much one minute she's saying Yes, I was there. I was in the car. You know, he left and then came back. And then the next statement, she's saying, I was never there. You know, I was just, he would come home with a car and I would be there and he would sell it. 
So her statements were all over the place, but she was still giving those details that made police actually believe her. Now, unfortunately, Peggy refused to testify against her husband in court and under law, they couldn't force her to. So while she gave some very good detailed statements of things that weren't even open to the press yet she still was flip-floppy you know saying one thing and then changing it you know in the next breath and then changing it again in the breath after that so they wanted to believe her and they wanted to believe it was her husband and wanted to you know continue this but she refused to testify against him and she was the only one that was able to say these things So, like, it really went nowhere. To make things a little bit crazier, because this is not already, like, making your head scratch enough, she also wrote a letter. And that letter was to her parents. But the police intercepted it, and that was after the first confession. So, like, she confessed for the first time, like, yes, my husband's a phantom killer, and this is what happened. And then she wrote a letter and that letter was to her parents where she said that she lied about accusing her husband only because the police were questioning her so much and she was tired of it. So in the letter, it says, I don't know what to do. They don't believe me. So what else can I do but to tell them that he did it? They will believe a lie. If I send Sweeney to the chair, that would be on my mind the rest of my life. For taking his life when he was not the one that killed that little boy and girl on April 13th, 1946. I could send him to the chair. Then I would be a killer. And then she ends the note. I don't think that they want to send me to the pen, but it is Sweeney they are after. So all in all, Yol Sweeney was never charged in relation to any of the murders because she wouldn't talk against him. So was he or was he not the Phantom Killer? It depends on who you ask. So if you ask Max Tackett and Tillman Johnson, the officers that originally arrested Peggy, they 100% believe that they had caught the killer and by all accounts, they continue to believe that until their death. So like they were satisfied that it was Yul Sweeney that committed these crimes. However, if you ask the sheriff or any of the Texas Rangers or, you know, really most people that were working that case, they were unconvinced that it was Yul Sweeney. You know, Yul did go to jail because he was stealing those cars and trying to sell them. So that is a crime. So he did go to jail. But even after he went, they were still looking. They were still on the hunt for the killer. And it continued for years. And like I said, this is still an unsolved case. So they are still trying to figure out who did it. And I know what you're thinking. There were fingerprints. Yes, they did, in fact, you know, check Yul Sweeney's fingerprints along with all the other suspects that they had throughout the years against those that were taken from the Starks crime scene and the various other prints that were found, and no one was a match for those. So Yul Sweeney also did not match the prints that were found, which is why this has still continued to be an unsolved case, because while Peggy did have a lot of information, his fingerprints did not match. So, like, the hard evidence just wasn't there. So, you know, like I said, he went to jail for that car theft, And again, he was a habitual offender. So he was in and out of jail for all of his life until his death in 1994. And throughout his entire life, he did deny 
being the Texarkana Phantom. So with that being said, you know, rumors swirled all around Texarkana following these attacks and for many years after. And some rumors were that the Rangers and law enforcement knew exactly who the person was and they were just covering it up. Some believed that it was indeed Yul Sweeney, but, you know, they they couldn't pin it on him. And then others believed that it was possibly a very wealthy family that was able to influence the officers. And that's why that the person was never arrested, but they did know who was responsible. But again, there was no proof of any of these rumors to be true. And that's why to this day, it is still unsolved. These murders did influence the pop culture, and that's where we saw the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Now, this movie is very, very loosely based on these murders. So if you actually watch the movie, and I finally did watch the movie, while some things were accurate as far as the amount of victims and, you know, very little minor details were correct, it was actually very dramatized, and that unfortunately hurt the case. So this movie was released in the 70s and it had a lot of misleading and false details that it just like it it made people believe like that was true. So in the very beginning, it says what you're about to see is true. Only the names have been changed. And back in that day, they didn't really think that it was that dramatized. I mean, the ones that were in the area, I'm sure were like, hey, that's not how that happened. But if you lived further away you had to been like, oh my gosh, that that happened. And, you know, you're only hearing about it through this movie. You know, it's been a couple of years since this has happened. And you kind of, you start to freak out. Now, just bear with me for a little bit because I'm going to kind of pick your brain on this one. So the murders happened in 1946. About 20 years later, the Zodiac Killer was terrorizing California between 1968 and 1969, which, you know, generated a lot of fear. And then this movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, was released in 1972. So that's only three years after the Zodiac Killer and all of that was happening. So you got to believe that there was some, you know, panic because, you know, the Moonlight murders had happened in 46 and then Zodiac started to happen in 68. And in this movie, which reminded you, hey, that the Moonlight murders happened in 46 was released in 72. So like you're getting that dose of reality brought back and that fear brought back. And to think that neither the phantom killer from the Moonlight Murders or the Zodiac was caught. I mean, it had to have generated so much fear and panic. I mean, during the Moonlight Murders, you know, they said that the houses were normally left unlocked and the doors, you know, open and things like that. Where suddenly the windows were shut and locked, the doors were locked. And then you had the Zodiac, which did the same thing in California. People who were going out and, you know, going to these different places suddenly stopped. And then you had this movie that reminded you of all this. And it just created a lot of fear that people were locking their doors, you know. It didn't matter anymore if you were in Texarkana, Texas, or Arkansas, or California. Like, this movie exposed more people to this and they were terrified you know they were hearing this on the news and they're watching this movie so i'm sure it had effect on many people and created that panic for not just that because you know you had texas 
to California and who knows where would be next, which then leads us into my theory. So like I said, the Moonlight murders happened in 1946 and some might call me crazy. I know my husband kind of thinks it a little bit, but you know, when you start to kind of piece it together, it makes sense. But I believe the Moonlight Murders could have possibly been the same person and killer as the Zodiac. So if you kind of compare them, there are a lot of similarities. Both of them started to attack lover lanes and kill people in pairs. Both of them were hooded figures. Moonlight Murders had a kind of pillowcase while the Zodiac had kind of like a burlap cover. Both used guns. I mean, I know that's not really like a thing, but I mean, it's a thing. And these murders were only, you know, roughly 20 years different. So the Moonlight Murders could have been the person starting out and getting their feet wet, so to speak, and then upgraded and moved, which is why Texarkana suddenly got quiet and they moved to California where they continued their murdering spree and got better. And then they started to kind of get confident and kind of tease the police, which is where you saw the letters that started to be released and sent. And then again, like the Moonlight Murders, the Zodiac disappeared. So I'm not saying that they are the same person per se, but I'm saying there are a lot of similarities. So if they are not the same person, maybe the Zodiac was inspired by the Moonlight Murders or maybe was an apprentice of the person who did that crime. I don't know. That's just kind of something that you kind of have to think about. Like, were they connected? Were they maybe a copycat killer off of the Moonlight Murder? Or were they completely separate crimes that just happen to have some similarities? So that's where I'm going to actually leave you because, you know, you got to kind of think about this. And I've been thinking about it and I'm like, I'm semi convinced that they are one and the same. But at the same time, I'm kind of not because you just don't know. And it's just it, it gets me like I keep thinking about it like, yes, they are the same person, but no, they're not. And then recently the news released that a group was able to identify who the Zodiac is. However, I'm not convinced and authorities are saying that that person has a lot of discrepancies on why that person is not the Zodiac. And I'll be releasing that as well as the FBI case files on both the Moonlight Murders and the Zodiac. I'm still kind of still digging into it. So just because I stopped this episode doesn't mean I am done with this. Like, it's something that I'm really interested in and I really want to see, you know, what happens and I want to figure out who it is. I mean, that's one of the biggest mysteries. It's kind of like the Jack the Ripper murders that has happened many, many years ago. And we still today are still trying to figure it out. And I mean, that will probably never happen, but it still fascinates us because we're still trying to figure out, you know, how was this person able to get away with it? And how could this person possibly have done these horrible things? I mean, the Moonlight Murders and the Zodiac kind of do the same thing. Like we are so fascinated by them. Because especially in the 40s and in the 60s, our technology had advanced that you would think we would be able to find who these people were. But somehow they have eluded us. And still to this day, we don't know. And it's that mystery that kind of brings us closer to it and want to learn more. So I'm going to be continuing to look into this. 
I encourage everyone to look into this. I mean, hopefully, maybe someday we can find out who did this and bring the relatives some peace. But if you have any theories, let me know. I mean, tell me, hey, I think that it could be the Zodiac and they are one in the same or I think you're crazy and they have nothing in common. Who do you think? Was it Yul Sweeney? Was it Duty Tennyson? I mean, you know, maybe you live in Texarkana or in Arkansas or anywhere in that area. Maybe, you know, you've heard of a different theory. Just let me know. Contact me on all my social medias. I said it at the beginning, but I'll say it again at HTT Listen Closely. You can also email me httlistenclosely at gmail.com and reach out. Let me know what you think. But until next time, always remember to listen closely.